Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapters 9 through 11, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Good News for All Who Believe. Book of Romans, and where we normally uh, would be, the passage that we're ready for is chapter 9. But however, what we're going to do today is a, an overview uh, sermon, uh, like we do occasionally. Um, we're going to be looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11. So rather than read all three chapters right now, uh, I've picked just a section in chapter 10. So if you'll open up to chapter 10 and find verse 9, we'll read 9 through 13. Then we'll pray, ask for God's help, uh, and then we'll study. So Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. And let's read. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on, the, call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we worship you and we want to see the glories, the wisdom, of what you have designed, what you are bringing about in the great plan of redemption in the gospel. So Father, I pray that as we study, I pray that you give us eyes to see. I pray that you'll give us uh, the ability to, to understand, see the insights, to comprehend, oh God, um, what you've designed, what you're bringing about, how you're displaying your glory, bringing your kingdom, building your church, preparing a bride, adopting sons and daughters. Lord, help us to see these things and to worship by seeing your wisdom and glory displayed. So please help. Please bless our time of worship and the study. Please bless us as we observe the Lord's Supper. We pray for our little ones um, back in the next room. Please bless all that's gonna happen here. Help me to preach and all of us, O oh Lord, to hear and receive your word. So please give your grace. We ask it in the name of Christ, amen. Uh, so after a number of weeks of um, sermons that have been highly applicational, you know, as we've studied through uh, Romans 8, a great deal of what we looked at uh, was, was deeply applicational. We're now turning gears again. And in this next section that we're entering, now understand, there's going to be a lot of application. So it's not that we're leaving application, but the application will be different than what we've been seeing. We are returning again to this logical argument that is unfolding in these first 11 chapters uh, of this book. So we've mentioned numerous times that starting in chapter one, verse 16, all the way through chapter 11, verse 36, the end of 11 there, the message of the gospel is explained. It is proven 
Um, the Spirit is even inspiring Paul to build an argument, to, to show things, uh, to use reason to prove things about the gospel. And where we enter, starting in chapter 9, 9, 10, and 11, we enter a section that's looking at the last major doctrine that the book of Romans is going to address. Now understand, it's not the last major doctrine that you could study in, in, in regards to the gospel. But it is the last major doctrine that Paul addresses in this letter because it's what the recipients needed to hear. And so in these three chapters, what I want to do today is um, explain an overview, okay? Um, so, that, so that you understand how this fits into the, the overall argument, how it fits into the gospel. Um, this is another one of those times where we kind of climb the mountain, um, get to a higher vantage point and look at the forest as a whole. You know, when you study verse by verse, it's like picking a leaf off of the tree and studying very closely the one leaf, the one detail. And there's truth and beauty in that and God means for us to do it. But there's also, we must from time to time study the Bible that we, we look at bigger sections and see the forest as a whole. In the great plan of redemption, you, you need to know that part of the application is to know it and be amazed. Part of the application in understanding how the whole gospel God's glorious plan of redemption fits together. What he wants is that we see it, the whole thing. We step back and see the great mosaic of the beauty of what he's done. And we marvel and say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so in the book of Romans, a very helpful way to study is to look at the whole thing in big sections. So what I'm, I'm going to do today is this last major doctrine, 9, 10, 11, we're going to look specifically at it. I'm going I'm to do two things in the message. Part one, I'm going to address some cultural and biblical context that's going to help us understand why 9, 10, and 11 are so crucial, why there were misunderstandings about the truth that's presented. And then secondly, I'll, I'll do a kind of quick overview. Look at chapter nine and, and here's, here's what's there. Chapter 10, the same in chapter 11. So we, we begin in this first part with some supporting truths. Uh, picture for a second, a brick layer. And you've seen when, when bricks are laid in a wall, the two bricks will be laid side by side, end to end, and then there's one that's stacked on top of that. The two bricks beneath it support the one that is above it, and there's a way that the whole wall interconnects with its, itself. Studying truths of the Bible is a lot like that. Every truth of the Bible is interconnected with the others, and there are a lot of times that in order to understand one particular truth, you have to understand some truths beneath it that support that truth. I, I think my mentor's right when he has said, there are some truths of the Bible we're just not going to understand until we spend 10 uninterrupted hours thinking on that one truth. And then sometimes you got to stack several of those truths together in order to get to a heavier doctrine and truth. Well, to understand 9 through 11, it is going to require some truths to be grasped 
before we'll understand 9 through 11. I don't think we're going to have to spend uh, 10 hours on each one of them. We don't have time for that today. But some grasp of a few supporting truths in order to understand the primary truth that is given in these chapters. So I'm going to bring up a couple of critical matters cultural and biblical context to understand the main idea of 9 through 11. First, chapters 9 through 11 is still addressing the gospel, the essential gospel. And what I mean is, it's not like chapters 1 through 8 are the gospel and now we move on to other things. No, no, no. We are still addressing essential doctrines of the gospel. If I ask you the question, and I do this from time to time in sermons, I ask you the question, what is the gospel? In your minds, every Christian needs to be able to answer that. The Bible instructs us to always be ready. Always be ready with an answer. Anybody who asks you, what's the hope? What must I do to be saved? You always need to be ready to answer, what is the gospel? So if I ask you, what is the gospel? What would you respond? Well, you can explain the gospel taking 10 hours. You can do it in 10 minutes. And you can also do it in about 20 seconds. There are some verses of the Bible that give the gospel in about 20 seconds. John 3, 16, the gospel in a nutshell in about 20 seconds. Um, There's a sentence um, that I often teach our students in the good news classes. And I try, I don't always remember, but I try to repeat it enough that it kind of gets ingrained into their heads. And so here's that sentence that is a, a brief explanation of the gospel in about 20 seconds. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the son of God, came to the earth, lived a perfect life, died for sins, rose from the dead so that we can be saved by faith. If if you want that sentence, I can give it to you after the message today. But in that brief little sentence, I've mentioned at least nine major doctrines associated with the gospel, okay? So for instance, If you're going to understand what the gospel is, you must know who Jesus is. Uh, Was he just simply a nice teacher who said some nice things? No, he is the living son of God who came as Lord, Messiah and Savior. To understand the gospel, you must know how to be saved. The what must I do part by faith. So you you understand it. There are at least nine major doctrines that are associated there in just that brief little description I gave. But here's another, here, here is another one of those doctrines in that sentence. And that's included in places like John 3, 16 and such. But it's a truth that you might have assumed is obvious because of some background teaching you've gotten, but it has not been obvious through history. And in fact, there have been a great deal of misunderstandings about it. And here is that doctrine. The gospel is the good news of salvation to all who believe on the Lord Jesus. It is that the gospel is the good news of salvation to everyone who believes on the Lord Christ. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You you might assume that that is obvious. As we go through our study, we're going to look at some ways that it's not, we'll see, it's not quite as obvious as what we think. And 
for, for thousands of years, even stretching into the Old Testament and continuing all through church history, there have been tremendous misunderstandings on that truth right there. And in every generation, in every culture, there have been some unique ways that that culture had some major misunderstandings about it. And that includes the church in America today. In the church in America today, there are enormous misunderstandings and confusions over this. The gospel is for all who believe on the Lord Jesus. It is for all people groups, all nations, tribes, languages, all walks of life, all tax brackets, all morality levels, male or female, Jew or Gentile. This issue has again and again been misunderstood. Now, I want to show you that this is part of the gospel. Flip back to chapter one with me, if you will, Romans one. We've come here just about every time we've started a new section, we return here and remind ourselves of some, th of some things. In chapter one, verses 16 and 17, we have the central idea of the first 11 chapters um, given to us in a shortened version here. So it, 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 at least in a seed small form, there is a reference to every doctrine, every section of this first 11 chapter. So chapter one, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. What does that mean? There was a whole study for salvation. What is this salvation? There was a whole study to everyone who believes to the Jew first. What does that mean? We will look at that in nine through 11 and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God. We had a whole study on this righteousness of God that is given to those who turn to Christ. It's revealed from faith to faith. It's by faith and not by works as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So their outline two verses is one statement that gives all the major doctrines. Um, let me just quickly say, there is more to the gospel than just what uh, is mentioned there in those two verses. So for instance, the book of Romans doesn't go into detail on who Jesus is, but God gave us other books of the New Testament to do that. The book of John, the book of Colossians and Hebrews, they really uh, address and spend deep time on who Jesus is, the eternal son of God, Lord of heaven and earth. Romans just mentions it very briefly, but Romans is the book that in God's plan, it's the book that dealt with justification in depth, this righteousness in depth. And there's no other place in the Bible that has the full explanation of what we're going to see in 9, 10, and 11 other than the book of Romans. So this is part of the role that it plays. But you notice in chapter 1 there, verses 16 and 17, this emphasis on the gospel is for everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. There is no distinction in people group. All who turn to Christ in faith will be saved. Part of the gospel is understanding that it is for all who believe. The good news of salvation is not just for Jews. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for white people, or it doesn't exclude white people. 
It's not just for the, the relatively good people, as oftentimes religious folks can think. The gospel is for uh, the prostitute and the drunkard who turn to Christ and believe. It is the good news of salvation to all who believe on Christ. It is for all who believe, uh, meaning that you aren't saved just because you breathe or just because you think you are entitled to it or just because you think you are a good person or go to church or do religious things. There must be personal trust in Christ. And it is for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning it is not just faith in general, faith in whatever religion you choose. It is not just faith in a generic sense, and it's not even just in general faith in God. It is specifically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must hear and believe on the Lord Jesus. But this statement that the salvation, that salvation is available to everyone who believes, listen, it has been highly controversial throughout history and for all kinds of different reasons. All kinds of different reasons. And every generation has had ways that it misunderstood this doctrine. Now, I want to keep showing you that this is essential gospel truth. You can keep your place in Romans. Uh, jump to the book of Galatians for a moment. Pastor Ben's been uh, teaching through the book of Galatians. It's been excellent. Uh, Galatians chapter three, find verse six real quick. I want to show you a little section. <clears throat> Galatians 3, verse 6, uh, follow along. Even so, Abraham, now here's a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15. Be Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. From the book of Genesis, it has been revealed that to be right with God, you must come to him in faith. Faith is the critical basis. Now, now keep following though. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham, meaning it's not of the bloodline of Abraham. It is the sons and daughters of faith. Those who believe they are the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham. But now watch this in verse eight, how faith is connected to this next doctrine that we are considering. Verse eight, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So there, there's critical explanation there that, that justification being made right with God, salvation, it comes on the basis of faith. Not by works, it's by faith. But then look at verse eight again. It says that in the Old Testament, God preached the gospel beforehand. Now pause there. When it says that God preached the gospel in the Old Testament, what would you expect to be stated next? Because what is stated next, I find surprising. When he says that God preached the gospel beforehand in the Old Testament, I would think that the next thing he would say is point to one of those types and shadows, one of those hundreds of ways that the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus, uh, who he is and the ministry he would fulfill, that kind of thing, or even the justification by faith thing, which was alluded to. But that's not the part that he references here. He references the part, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham when God said this, all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. In other words, it is the emphasis 
that God's plan of redemption would eventually include all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations who come to faith in the Lord Jesus. By, by the way, uh, the way that Abraham is a blessing to the nations is that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Abraham's offspring led to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And as the gospel goes out and souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation hear the message of the gospel and they uh, trust in Christ, they become sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. And so Abraham is a blessing to the nations. But even all the way back Back in Genesis 12, God made this clear. His plan included all the people groups who would believe on the Lord Jesus. But part of the point I'm trying to make clear is that this is an essential part of the gospel. Uh, if you come back to Romans 10, Romans 10 uh, and this uh, section that we, uh, we read at the beginning uh, starting in verse nine there, you see it emphasized, what must I do to be saved? And the emphasis is faith, faith. And you got to see that there is a critical connection between salvation by faith and why it is possible that the Gentiles can be saved. Why it is possible that those who have lived rebellious lives, who, who never grew up in church doing good things, when they hear the message of the gospel in one moment can be born again. Why? Because it's on the basis of faith and not a lifetime of acquiring good deeds. So there's a vital connection between those two major doctrines. But nine and 10 explain it's by faith. But look at verse 11. The scripture says, whoever believes they will not be disappointed. Verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord, he's the Lord of all. There are not different gods for different nations. There's one Lord, he's Lord of all. Abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the emphasis on that God is including all the nations as he is bringing his message of the gospel for souls to be saved. It is not just for one group. All right. Now, secondly, here's the second block that we'll lay. I want, I want us to consider briefly how this confusion came about in biblical history. There are some things that led to some great confusion by the time you come to the first century AD in the New Testament era. God created a world of glory but mankind fell from the glory they were created in. Adam and Eve's sin plunged all of their descendants, that's all of us, plunged us into ruin. We are all born under a covenant that Adam was created under, the covenant of works, or sometimes called the covenant of life. And we are all born with a nature that is depraved, a nature that uh, wants to run from God, a nature that consistently breaks the covenant that we are under. We are born under the law of God and we consistently break the law of God. All this is to say is that mankind is lost. First Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. We run from God, we resist God. Romans one, we worship the creature rather than the creator. And what this means is that in Adam, all of his offspring, we are condemned. Apart from Christ, we are condemned. As you look at the world, there is a critical worldview shift that has to happen in your understanding of the Bible. 
Before you learn the message of the gospel and study the scriptures, popular religion looks at the world and sees the great masses as, you know, most people are nice. Most people are good. It's the serial killers who will be in hell. The Bible flips this and says all of the world is condemned. But God is saving a remnant, even all the way back to the book of Genesis. Consistently, God has always ensured that there is a remnant of those who are right with him, who have trusted in him. All the world is condemned. All the world is under the wrath of God. If that, if that is new to you, um, as I say those kinds of things and that troubles you, I just beg you to read the Bible. Even, you know, Jesus spoke of this. Often read the Gospels, read the book of Romans. You'll see this is the case. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is eternal death. But back in the garden, God promised Adam and Eve, even as he was pronouncing the curse, he, pr he gave a promise what was broken, he would fix. God would bring redemption. God set in motion a plan. A plan that we can refer to as the, the plan of redemption. The, the gospel, yeah, the gospel even stretches all the way back to the book of Genesis. It would eventually lead to Jesus, the son of God, coming into the earth to die to pay for sins. And now the message of salvation is going out to the ends of the earth. But we got to go back a little bit to understand that God chose to bring about this plan in a long process. There are a lot of steps and stages in the process as we look back that we can see that God has done. God worked to get the world ready for the coming of Christ. Part of his plan in the course of history, God came to one particular man. He came to one particular man, not because he was righteous. This guy wasn't better than other people. He was an idol worshiper. God chose him out of his sheer pleasure. That man's name was Abram. God later changed his name to Abraham. I want you to look back to Genesis with me, please. Uh, go to Genesis 12. We've referenced this several times. Genesis 12, for the sake of time, I'm going to read through it quickly. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. His offspring would eventually lead to the nation of Israel. And I will bless you. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And then notice this phrase, the one we read in Galatians, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Every family line, every tribe on the earth will eventually be blessed by God. And this blessing is the blessing of salvation. That salvation will come to every tribe and tongue and people group as they hear the message of Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. And as they believe, they are blessed by Abraham. Of course, Abraham didn't understand all that and neither did Moses and other Old Testament saints. But track the history for a second here. So God made these promises to Abraham. Abraham had a son named Ishmael, but God said that this is not the child of promise. The covenant will not carry on through Ishmael. Abraham had another son named Isaac, and God said, this is the child of promise. That phrase, child of promise, is a very important phrase, by the way. 
Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Again, the promise and covenant only continued through one of them, emphatically not Esau, but through Jacob. God eventually changed Jacob's name to Israel. Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons. These became the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel came from these 12 sons. So just just quickly, if you're very new to the Bible, um, when the Bible uses this language of an Israelite, a Hebrew, a Jew, that is someone who is of this bloodline, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A Gentile is the Bible word for anyone who is not in that bloodline, okay? So for most of our background, we're from a small community. Most of us have similar kinds of backgrounds. For most of us, we come from Gentile lineage, uh, sons of Japheth, one of the sons of uh, Noah there, a Gentile. But back to the history. God creates this nation, blesses this nation. You know the story. They go down to Egypt. He delivers them in the Exodus. God brings them to Mount Sinai at Mount Sinai. Critical moment in Old Testament history. God enters into a covenant with the nation. He gives them his law. He gives them true religion. He gives them the temple services and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the washings. God reveals himself in a way that no other nation had had revelation from God. So I just want you to think about this. All the nations of the earth running from God. That doesn't mean that none of them were saved. We encounter the occasional believer in a man like Melchizedek. God always reveals himself to have a remnant on the earth. But as a whole, the nations are running from God. But God makes one nation and he chooses them to reveal himself in a special kind of way. The nation of Israel. He, he gives them graces that other nations did not have. He made them his special people on the earth. God chose this nation to do some special things with. He gave them his scriptures. He gave them the knowledge of him through his word. But it is really critical that we understand what it means that this nation was chosen. Chosen for what? And this is the turn where a great many uh, of the misunderstandings have come. This group enjoyed amazing privileges, incredible graces, but listen very carefully, that does not mean that every Israelite from history is saved. That's not what it means that they were chosen. It is not that every soul of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were chosen for salvation. God chose them to shine as a light to the world. God has made his word, his gospel, himself known through this people. God chose them to do special things like this, to reveal his glory to the earth through a group of people. They should have been the first in line to run to salvation because they had his word. They had these revelations, but that's not been the case. And there's a tremendous misunderstanding that developed over the course of time among the Israelites. You know how this is a reality. I'm not trying to be mean when I say this, but it's just a reality. The masses don't study the Bible. Okay. That, that goes for the church in America. It's just a reality. I'm not being mean. The masses don't study the Bible. And over and over again, there are these popular ideas that, that sweep through popular religion. You know, we sometimes joke about it as the coffee mug Christianity. 
you know, little slogans, little phrases that absolutely have nothing to do with the Bible, but they get popular amongst religious people and they sweep through, okay? God will never give you more than you can handle, you know? Junk like that, not in the Bible, okay? But these ideas get popular. Well, among the people of Israel, there is an idea that got popular. It became assumed. Many just did not even question it. And it is this belief right here. I'm saved. I'm right with God. I have heaven because I was born a child of Abraham. That idea got so popular, it just became assumed to be true. Very few questioned. It doesn't mean everybody believed it, but it does mean that the masses did. There are some variations of it that it seems some of the Pharisees held to. Some of the Pharisees uh, believed that they made themselves righteous by their good deeds. But we, Israel, we're the only ones that have the law. So we're the only ones that even have a chance of being saved. There were various variations that came of that. But then here's another thing with errors. When people believe something that is um, wrong, give it a couple decades, it, it mutates, it gets worse, okay? And it develops into more things. We see it over and over in church history. That belief that I'm saved just because I'm an Israelite developed then into this. Only <coughs> Jewish people can be saved. The Gentiles have no hope. They're the accursed ones. They're just fuel for the fire of hell. We actually have some writings from Israelites, some of the rabbis and such that said, there will be no child of Abraham in hell and there will be no Gentile in heaven. So they had, they developed this belief. D does that make sense by why when you come to the New Testament, John the Baptist and Jesus would preach things like do not say to yourself that Abraham is your father. Do not trust in this, that, that, that you have eternal life. God is able to raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Why did they say that? Because it had been commonly believed that I'm fine, I'm justified just because I was born of this bloodline. So these two biblical errors became um, just assumed doctrine. So already now, I think you're starting to see the significance of Romans 9 through 11. Let me say just a little bit more. If we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus came. Uh, Jesus for three and a half years preached, preached truth. In his teaching, he addressed these matters that we are talking about and that come up in 9 through 11. But still the light bulbs didn't come on. It wasn't crystal clear, um, even to the apostles. Jesus trained the apostles. He died for sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. And then there's a big point here. From heaven, Jesus built his church by using his apostles. Still today, Jesus is building his church by using his people. From heaven... Jesus directed the apostles into truth. But early in the book of Acts, we see that even the apostles had some confusion on this whole Jews and Gentiles and the gospel going to the nations thing. There are these critical moments when, for instance, remember the time whenever... Um, Peter got the vision of the sheet coming down out of heaven. It was filled with all, all these creepy, crawly, unclean things that in the Old Testament they were not allowed to eat. And God said, Peter, go eat. 
And Peter goes, um, no, I'm not allowed to do that. God makes the declaration, what I have considered clean, no longer consider unclean. At that moment, God was revealing the old covenant. Those dietary restrictions are fulfilled and there's something new in this new covenant. At that moment, whenever the, uh, the vision lifts, two Gentiles are waiting on Peter and they ask for Peter to come with them because God has sent them and said, go search out this man named Peter and listen to what he has to say to you. Gentiles who were considered unclean. You see, you see the significance there? They were considered unclean. I, I think in normal circumstances, Peter would not have gone with these Gentiles, but the Lord directed him. He goes with the Gentiles. He meets with a man named Cornelius in his household and, and they want to know, God sent us, speak to us. Peter then preaches the gospel. While he is explaining the gospel, those Gentiles believe and are saved. And if somebody gets saved in a service while I'm preaching, I have no idea. Okay. I can't see invisibly what is happening. God gave a visible manifestation that they had been saved. God let Peter see visible uh, demonstrations that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were born again. That seems just kind of real obvious to us. Peter was shocked. You mean a Gentile can actually be saved? Peter goes back to the other apostles and elders and they're like, Peter? What have you done? You went into a Gentile's house? Peter, we're, we're going to have to bring some church discipline here. Don't, don't you tell me you ate Gentile food. You did not eat food with them, did you? Like this was just forbidden. It was forbidden because in the old covenant, God had called for a separation. There were distinctions. There are things that God was preaching in that era for that short temporary period of time. So Peter comes back and reveals it. And throughout the book of Acts, this comes up again and again. There are all these Jews who trust in Christ. They believe he is the Messiah, but they look at the Gentiles and there's just like, there's no way these guys can be saved because these previous errors were in their head and they had to do this deconstruction. Sometimes that's what it takes to grow. We have to deconstruct errors from the past and then rebuild with truth. To Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, the very first uh, church council of history was over this big issue. All of these Gentiles were being saved and there were a bunch of, uh, of the Jews who were going, oh, no, no, this is not supposed to happen like this. Those guys need to become Jews first. They need to be circumcised and come under the law and then they can be saved. And the whole point is Jesus led them to show no salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus and no other, adding nothing else. These people don't need to become Jews and then do works in order to become a Christian. They believe and they are saved. The gospel is the good news of salvation to everyone who believes. So I hope that helps lay some of the cultural biblical context for why 9, 10, and 11 are so critical. So now let me come to the second part and let me give a summary of these three chapters. Over and over we have seen the Bible do this and Romans do this, uh, um, that the Bible anticipates questions that people have. So a doctrine is taught and there are some natural questions and the Bible will anticipate that. 9, 10, and 11 is anticipating some questions. You can imagine that the Jews who believed the gospel were very confused about what they saw going on. Because here's what they were seeing. 
The Messiah has come. He has purchased salvation. But they look around at their fellow countrymen and their fellow countrymen, they are rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the Messiah. And now all these Gentiles are entering the church. It was only a few years into the church and there were more Gentiles than Jews. You got to understand, this was really confusing to them. And they're going, Paul, what's going on? I thought God said in the Old Testament that he was going to save Israel. That comes up in chapter 11. That is a prophecy. God will save Israel. So what's going on? You know, every day, they're hearing about new Gentile cities that, that receive the gospel. There's a church planted in Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Antioch. Every day, new tribes, new languages, new people are hearing the gospel. The church is growing, but it's growing by Gentiles. Paul, what's going on? I thought God said he was going to do something different. And God takes three chapters to address these questions. So let me take each of the chapters and show what's going on. Chapter nine, chapter nine. Most people know chapter nine to be the election chapter. Okay. And it is, if you're going to study the doctrine of God's sovereignty and predestining souls, you have to study Romans nine, but that's actually not the central point. It is one of the truths explained in order to answer this question, what's going on? Israel's rejecting Christ. Gentiles are being saved. What, what is happening here? And so all of that is explored in chapter nine. Uh, look at verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Look at verse eight. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. What he explains there is, there has been a great misunderstanding in what the word Israel means. There has been a great misunderstanding on who the true sons and daughters of Abraham are. There's been a great misunderstanding of what it means to be the people of God. The pe being the people of God is not being about born from a bloodline. It's about those who are the children of promise. And, and then watch this phrase here. And God has chosen individuals to be his children of promise from Israel and from the nations. And so somebody could then ask, Paul, what do you mean that God chose individuals? Well, that then is the section on election. And there's a, it's, it's one of the clearest places in the Bible that explains this, but it's all a part of this great question. You're in chapter nine, jump to verse 22. Here's, here's the way that it's summed up. And then the great turn comes verse 22. What if God Although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. That is a bold, bold statement on the doctrine of election. Probably the boldest in the Bible. That God chooses some and passes over others. But it is God's choice. But he has chosen not just from Israel, 
but also from the nations. The rest of the chapter then, you notice, starts to give quotes from the Old Testament because, guys, this is not just new revelation. God is making it clear in this new covenant, but God was talking about these things we saw even all the way back to Genesis 12. God has been giving prophecies throughout history that he was going to do this. And, and numerous times throughout the rest of the book, he's quoting Old Testament passages where God said back then, the plan was always to save souls from the nations. And here are a bunch of folks from Gentile nations who say, thank God, thank God, that his plan was not just to save people from one nation, but from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. You come from an ancestry of paganism and idolatry, and I do too. God came to you in grace. God brought a change in history where he turned things for you to hear the gospel. Thank God you got to hear the gospel and be saved if in fact you are in Christ. But then there comes a turn in chapter 10. Now this is really helpful, guys. This is really insightful. In chapter 10, the same question is being addressed, but a different perspective is shown. Why are Jews missing the kingdom and Gentiles being saved? The first and most critical, critical answer to that is the sovereignly ordained plan of God. But chapter 10 shows us the human side of things. So chapter nine addresses, why are these things happening? Because God has a plan. Chapter 10 says, why are these things happening? Let me show you the human side of things. And so it's glorious. You have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility put right next to each other. Why are Jews missing the kingdom and Gentiles being saved? Because salvation comes by faith. And the Israelites have rejected that. And they have insisted on a heresy that they make themselves righteous by their keeping of the law. And so they are missing the kingdom. But Gentiles, they're hearing the message of Jesus and they are believing and being safe. So that's the human side of things. So Romans 10 is this really amazing place um, because it talks about the human responsibility of preaching the gospel, of effort to make the gospel known, the necessity of hearing and believing the gospel. So if you want to study those things, Romans 10 might be the best place in the whole Bible, but it's addressing it because of this question. What's going on with the Jew and Gentile thing? And then chapter 11, chapter 11. There are two more big questions that are asked. Here's the first. It's a natural question. If, if God has chosen so many Gentiles to be saved and Israel is rejecting their Messiah, does that mean that God is done with Israel? Has he just cast them away and says no more? The question is asked, and the answer is no, he's not done. And then he goes on to explain that in the last days, he's going to do something remarkable. God is doing something. Now, this is, this is wild, guys. This is helping you understand reality right now. In this season that you live in right now, this is an era that Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. What God is doing right now is that Israel has rejected Christ. God has turned to the Gentiles to open the doors of salvation to the nations. 
And in this season right now, God is working to make the people of Israel jealous. He's working to make them jealous. Have you ever thought about what a strange thing it is? That here we are, and you just think about our background, where we came from, Europe, whatever, wherever your ancestry goes back to. We come from all these different places. And yet, here's a whole big group of us this morning trusting in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Like from an outsider looking in, that's weird. The Jewish Messiah came, they rejected him, and all over the world, I've, I've, I've visited villages on the top of mountains and found a church, found believers who gather together at night and they worship Christ. They worship the Jewish Messiah. Here we are thousands away from that, thousands of miles away from that place. We're gathering together, praising the name of the Lord Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. That's weird. That's strange. There's nothing else comparable to it in all of the earth. How do you explain that? He's Lord. He's Lord. He really is Lord. And he is sending his message of salvation to the ends of the earth for souls to be saved. Well, God is doing that in this season. Jesus said he's not returning until all the nations hear until all the nations hear the message of the gospel. And then there is coming a day when those who are of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will embrace their Messiah. They will look out and they will see these Gentiles enjoying the sweet, beautiful grace of salvation, and they will want to embrace him themselves. There will be a great awakening among the Jewish people. It will be remarkable. And so some time is spent on that. And then secondly, if these Gentiles are in the kingdom and, and they're now part of the people of God, well, then how do Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians relate to one another? Because remember the old covenant, there was a distinction, a separation called for. Well, Paul, what are we supposed to do now? I mean, you don't expect me to shake their hand and call them brother, do you? You don't expect us to gather in the same building for worship. Oh, I'm going to get struck by lightning for saying it. You definitely don't expect us to eat meals together. How are we supposed to relate to each other? And there's this beautiful section where it is explained. The dividing walls have been torn down in Christ there is a new man being built, a new kind of people that is not, does not have the Jew and Gentile distinction and separateness, but being built into one picture, a tree, an olive tree, an olive tree that represents the people of God. Branches are being broken off of those Israelites who reject God. But then God goes out into the wild forest and finds wild olive trees. That's us wild Gentiles, finds wild olive trees and he cuts some of the branches off and brings them and grafts them into his tree called the people of God. And so when you look at all of that, God explains, God is showing what he's doing in this age, what the church is. And so the whole section, and I'm just about done, the whole section is brought to a conclusion at the end of chapter 11. Find chapter 11, look at verse 30 there. 
Now, this is, this is a little bit of a confusing sentence, but it is a lot of what I just explained there, okay? When he says you, he's speaking to the Gentiles. The they is referring to the Jewish people. So follow along with me. Verse 30, for just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, Israel's disobedience, so these also now, Gen uh, J Jewish people, have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who was first given that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. What has just happened is, Christian, if you understand verses 30 to 36 there, you understand another big installment of an insight into the cosmos. What God is doing in the world. What is he accomplishing? What is the big plan of redemption? Here is the timeline and what he's bringing about. God is bringing his kingdom to earth as new citizens join. Jesus is building his church as men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation believe the gospel. He is preparing his bride. And when he has gathered in all of the children of promise that he has ordained, all who believe on the name of Jesus, then the great consummation of the ages will come and Jesus will return. So there's application. Here's the application. Glory. Exult. See the wisdom and beauty of God and say with these final, these final verses, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The truth is preached. Whoever will turn to Christ will be saved. For you in this room, if you have never called on the name of the Lord to be saved, Jesus invites you. He actually does more than invite you. He commands you. He's commanding you to repent. That is to turn away from your rebellion and to come trust in Christ. You can do no good works that will make you right with God. You cannot earn it by it. You're not entitled to it. Here in just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. You understand this is a holy meal, but if you're not in Christ, don't think that participating in it is actually going to make you closer to God. He actually says, don't take it if you are not in Christ. It is a holy meal symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus that we have already received by faith and we remember it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.